We are, if you haven't um, noticed it yet, we are starting a new series uh, over the summer. Picking a summer series is always kind of uh, a difficult choice because uh, we've done the math on it, and it, about 35% of the congregation is away on every, any given Sunday. That's why we can fit in one room. Although, as you see this morning, we barely can fit in one room. But uh, that's why we're able to get into one room. So what we usually try to do is pick something, understanding that, you know, you can't really build too much one week on the other because people are going to be in and out. Um, If you remember last year, our summer series was Fruits of the Spirit. And uh, we had those two fig trees up here. And and we cut those the one fig tree, and it withered and died. And we hung fake fruit on it all summer. And that was last year's summer series. This year, we're looking at conversations with Jesus. And Jesus taught in the temple. Let me be very clear about that up front. But so much of his teaching is recorded, of what his teaching is recorded, isn't recorded about what he's saying in the temple. It's recorded about what he's saying on the streets. The truth is, if you want to understand me, the best way to understand me would probably not be to judge my life and my character and even what's important to me based on what I say to you, merely what I say to you on Sunday morning. You should probably see how I am on the streets. Now, if I'm honest, that scares me a little bit because sometimes I'm better on Sunday morning than I am on the streets, but not so Jesus. And so what we're going to be doing over the summer is just looking at these random conversations Jesus would have with people. He had conversations with good people and bad people. He had conversations with sinful people and righteous people. He had conversations with wealthy people and poor people. And so we're going to be looking at them week after week, just seeing how Jesus engaged with the culture and the people that that he ran into along the way. So that's where we're going this summer. We hope that you'll be around for most of it, if not all of it. Today, making his debut. Has he got these out already? Making his debut on the stage... To speak publicly for the first time. Now, let me explain something to you. The first time you talk to a room full of people like this is akin to a near-death experience, right? So I said to Tim, I'm going to come up here. I'm going to hold your hand. I didn't say touch your your thigh. I said I'm going to hold your hand. You can let go now. (laughs) Do you have a mic? Oh, you do have a mic. All right. So, and we're going to do this one together. So... You should welcome Tim. Get him all fired up, right? I've never had that ever, so I, I just I, know. I think it's way louder than anything That's you've right. ever had. All right, so today, Tim and I are going to share a story. We're going to look at some different characters in something we're calling um, Sinners and Winners. Timmy, take it away. Lily was born just down the road in Camden, New Jersey. She was the second of two girls. Her parents were both children of Portuguese immigrants. They lived across from a gas station in a small, broken-down, two-bedroom house with her grandparents, an uncle, and two dogs. Her father was an alcoholic, not a bad man, but not present either. Her mother spent most of her energy trying to deal with her father, trying to keep food on the table. Um, And so by the end of the day, she rarely had any energy left to spend on her two daughters. Theodore J. Winston III, on the other hand, was born only a few miles away, but worlds apart. In Villanova, Pennsylvania, proudly part of the towny mainline communities just outside of Philadelphia, 
Teddy was the firstborn son of Theodore and Tiffany Winston Jr. His dad, Theodore Jr., was the third straight Winston heir to ascend into preaching prominence in the city of brotherly love. As the renowned pastor of Philadelphia's largest and oldest evangelical church, Teddy's dad and mom were able to provide for him many, many of the accoutrements that would be expected for, for a child that was born into this social circle. You know, his dad's work as a pastor, it called him away from home lots, sure, sometimes to people's homes, other times for hospital visits and emergencies, but truth be told, just as often to political meetings and mayoral dinner parties. When Lily was eight years old, her father died of liver failure. Two years later, her mother remarried, and it was then that the real problem started. Her stepfather was not a good man. It was not uncommon for him to scream at her, her sister, or her mother, to manipulate them, to play them against each other. He had never wanted children and didn't want them now. But instead of being a passive man, as her father had been, it did seem as though he actively went out of his way to make their lives miserable. Her mother soon began making it very clear to her and her sister that it was a, they were a burden for her, that she no longer wanted them around that much. And it wasn't difficult for Lily and her sister to make excuses, to find excuses not to come home. At school and in public, she began to notice the way she dressed garnered her more or less attention from her peers, especially the boys. So her skirts became shorter and her heels became higher. And the more she held the attention of those around her, the more she forgot her troubles at home. Now, as Teddy grew towards his teenage years, his world became increasingly smaller. I mean, sure, he lived in a big city, but his life experiences became increasingly insular. In order to ensure a proper worldview, you see, Teddy's parents had enrolled him in the prestigious Trinity Academy. It was a, a private Christian school just outside of Philadelphia on the Jersey side of the Delaware. Trinity was exclusive, Trinity was expensive, and Trinity was elitist. Well, at least as much as you could be in a Christian sort of way. At Trinity, Teddy was taught lots of commandments. Those of the Bible, of course, and of those of the school. There was no shortage of laws around Trinity. No secular music, no TV, no reading of unapproved materials, no school dances, of course, and a constant reminding of the God-hating ways of the secular world. Now, this might have seemed less than an ideal place for your normal teenage boy to go to school, but not so for Teddy. See, Teddy had been steeped in the ways of religion since he was a young boy. I mean, Teddy knew how to navigate this world, and he took it by storm. Teddy quickly became a class leader, he organized the inner city missions trips and the class trips to see Chris Tomlin and Big Daddy Weave. He led Bible studies on campus and coffee houses off. Teddy was in his element and quickly raising his stature to one, of, one equal to its heritage. By the age of 12, Lily was spending most of her free time in clubs, smoking marijuana, drinking. Yet as hard as she partied, she still had dreams and aspirations for her future. One day, she hoped to become a teacher, and she did excel academically, especially in English. So much so that she was invited to be a part of an exclusive after-school program offered by a private school just outside of Philadelphia. Top students from both public and private schools in the area attended, including a young man named Teddy. Teddy was clearly marked out as a student from a private Christian school because of the insignia 
on his uniform. And Teddy was different from other boys that Lily knew. She couldn't quite place it, but when they interacted in study groups or when they passed each other in the hallway, she never caught him leering at her. Unlike other boys, he didn't seem attracted to her at all. In fact, at times he seemed almost repulsed. Whatever it was, Lily found herself strangely attracted to him. One day she stayed late in an attempt to catch his attention. As she attempted small talk, Teddy finally looked at her and said, I'm not sure what you're hoping for, but I don't date girls like you. And I'm a Christian, and clearly you're not. Because otherwise, you wouldn't dress that way. You wouldn't act that way, the way that you do. Shocked and embarrassed, Lily just turned and walked out of the room as quickly as she could. She had believed that he was different than other boys, and he was, just not in the way that she had expected. His stinging rejection hurt far more than any wound she had ever received from any other boy, because they, at least, pretended to care. During her senior year, Lily applied for a scholarship at NYU and was accepted. But by this time, she had still been partying heavily and ended up dropping out in the middle of her freshman year. So she moved back to Philadelphia, where she found a full-time waitressing job. By the time Teddy was a senior at Trinity, it was already apparent that he was the man on campus. I mean, he read everything he could get his hands on. He knew everything. Anytime one of his classmates, heck, anytime one of Teddy's teachers had a biblical or a spiritual question, they came to Teddy. He was almost a staff member at the age of 18. It was then that Teddy was asked to lead a pilot program at Trinity to take some of their top-performing students off campus to a local rival private school for what was deemed to be an educational outreach program. Trinity had decided to become part of a teaching co-op whereby local private and public schools would send their best and their brightest off for after-school enrichment together. Teddy loved the recognition, both as the best and the brightest and as the program leader, yet he also wasn't sure about all this mingling with the secular crowd. Teddy knew that at his heart, this program had been founded on trying to give high-performing inner-city kids an opportunity for advancement that they otherwise would never have had. The co-op had thought that if these achievers from all, all areas of society's socioeconomic levels, if they could be brought together regularly, then perhaps, just perhaps, the walls of class separation and the walls of other separation might be torn down. Teddy, as much as he liked the idea, he was concerned, though, for some of the younger kids that he was taking with him to the program. You see, he didn't want them to be corrupted by the morally shallow public school kids he knew that they were likely to encounter. Yet Teddy also understood the call provided a field white for harvest, and he was going to use the opportunity to share with as many kids as he could the truth of the gospel. At the end of the first day, Teddy realized quickly that, boy, did these poor kids need the gospel. Their language, their, their clothes, their, their crude sense of humor, it was all so unfamiliar to Teddy. Truthfully, it all seemed so unseemly to Teddy. And so now he felt purpose for a moment like he had never had before. That perhaps he'd been placed in that school at that time to make sure that people understood right from wrong. Teddy felt that he could make a difference, and if he was successful, sure, kids' SAT scores would go up, but maybe, just as importantly, the length of their skirts and their constant use of profanity would go down. Teddy became a man on a mission. 
He was going to change lives, and he was going to reverse the secular tide in his city. When she was 22, Lily's addictions, her partying, wound up costing her not only her dignity, but her job. Eventually, she had little else but the clothes on her back. One day, she saw an ad for an escort agency in the paper, which you needed no, ex no experience, no qualifications. You can make fast, easy money. She naively believed that she would only be escorting men to dinner, but the agency quickly made her understand that this job came with certain requirements, so she quickly left. But still, she couldn't find a job. So eventually, knowing full well what waited her, she reapplied as an escort. In her mind, she told herself that it would only be for a few weeks, only until she had enough money to get back on her feet. But the money was so easy, and she was lured in. After a while, she began to believe that this is just who she was. How could she possibly go back? Besides, the money fueled her drug habit. It let her keep living the life that she wanted to live. So weeks turned into months, months turned into years. And even though she knew it wasn't real, the attention she received from clients met a deep felt need in her soul. And in the end, she told herself it was better than being alone. Often she would pass by the first evangelical church of Philadelphia as she escorted a client throughout the heart of the city. A man frequently stood on the steps outside the church preaching to the passers-by, to whoever one would listen to him. Lily always saw him, and he always seemed to see her. But she never saw a spark of recognition in her eyes. And if you asked her today what it was that he said, what it was that she heard him say as she passed by all those times, she would never be able to tell you what it was he said, because from the time she recognized Teddy, all she could hear were the words of judgment and rejection and condemnation that he had spoken to her that day in high school. And yet, Teddy's words seemed so very different from what some of her escort friends were telling her about another preacher across town. Her friends told her that they were welcome to go to his house for dinner to join him wherever he was at, whenever he was around, available. So one day, she heard he was going to have dinner at a party at a nearby house where she lived. So she decided out of curiosity, to go see who he was, what he was about. Unbeknownst to her, the nearby house belonged to none other than Theodore. Well, it turns out that Teddy's grooming had paid off handsomely. Upon graduation from Trinity, he got a full ride to the so-called Harvard of Christian schools. And he took everything he learned from home and Trinity and the after-school program with him. And while away at school, Teddy's quick wit and voracious study habits again propelled him to the very top of his class. And if there was one love for Teddy, if there was one topic that fired him up, it was knowing the scriptures. Teddy loved the word of God. Teddy knew the Bible like few others. He could quote almost all of it, it seemed, by chapter and verse. And man, Teddy could wield the Bible too, sometimes like a club. He'd often say that the word of God was sharper than a two-edged sword. And if that it was used properly, it could convict even the most ardent of sinner to turn from his ways. Teddy was good at this too. He honed his craft on the streets, on the street corners of Philly when he got home from school. He became something of a street preacher. Now, he would never have identified with that moniker. That would have not been sophisticated enough for a man of his background. But Teddy loved open-air preaching. 
In fact, when Teddy took over for his father as the, the lead pastor at First Evangelical Christian Church in Philadelphia, Teddy made reaching out to the lost a priority of their ministry. Sure, they did things like soup kitchens and job fairs, but Ted, Teddy's bread and butter was what he called Turnaround Tuesdays. Teddy and some of the other church leaders would take to the streets right out front of the church on Tuesday nights, and their clarion call was clear. Repent. Clean up your act. For one day, you're going to have to stand before your God and give an account. Now, Turnerized Tuesdays, they became a pretty big thing in South Philly, so much so that even the press started covering these stories. Teddy even became a little bit of a local celebrity with a half-hour show on a local cable channel built around his message of morality. One turnaround Tuesday, though, a reporter found his way up to Teddy's bullhorn and asked him his opinion about another growing religious movement around town. It, it seemed that another pastor uh, in Philly had been putting together a gathering uh, that was somewhat different and, and amassed quite a following. It was a following that was much different than the folks who occupied the pews of Teddy's church. The reporter asked Teddy if he had any comments regarding this new preacher and his very different ministry techniques. It seemed that this other priest had no pulpit other than the homes of drug addicts and prostitutes in town. He gathered with them nightly. Sometimes he slept with them in their shelters and he ate with them at their missions. And on Sunday morning, he would gather with them under the Betsy Ross Bridge and hold a very different kind of church service. Well, Teddy was a media-savvy guy. He knew better than to denigrate some religious do-gooder publicly, but... He knew deep down that privately this man's theology would need some straightening out and that Teddy was just the man to do it. And what better way than to do it in a public forum with the press there and the cameras rolling and some of the pre this other preacher's vagabonds perhaps in the audience. So Teddy invited his new rival to dinner with an open invitation printed in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Luke, chapter 7, starting in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, and she kissed them and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One of them owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair, 
You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins, Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This story is often referred to as the anointing of Jesus by the sinful woman. Um, And when I was looking through trying to figure out what conversation of Jesus do I want to talk about, what conversation. You know, I was reading through Luke, reading through the Gospels, and this one, I read it, and then I read it again, and then I read it again, and it was like, yeah, this is the one, and I love this story. Um, and the conversation is mainly between Jesus and Simon, but the thing that captivates us, right, is this woman who never says a word. Um, and so it was kind of paradoxical, as I was thinking about it, that we're talking about conversations, and this is a conversation But the thing that speaks loudly, the most loudly in this, right, is the actions, the picture of what's going on, what this woman does. Uh, And that's why, you know, we we try to paint this picture of the two characters, of the Pharisee and of the sinful woman in this backstory, so that you could see in your mind's eye this picture of what is happening here. Because the words are important, yes, but her actions captivate us. So Jesus and Simon are the primary actors. Jesus is probably reclining on the floor on his left elbow because the left hand is is used for other things. Use your right hand for eating. Recline on the floor, circle of pillows, there's a meal there, the Pharisees, Jesus is there, probably outside in a garden somewhere. A lot of the town, it was customary for them to be able to come and watch, like a local form of entertainment, watch the, the verbal sparring, the conversation between Jesus and the Pharisee here. And Jesus is, as they're eating, Jesus is, is talking. The Pharisees talking, they're conversing. Jesus is trying to engage him, trying to provoke him, trying to attempt to break through this veil of self-pride and trust. And as, as John said, the Pharisee is trying to sound out Jesus, find out who is he. Is he really a prophet? Is he really someone important? Or can I just ignore him? And the presence of the sinful woman in this whole scene provides such a startling contrast between this religious man, right, who trusts in himself for salvation and the sinful woman who is painfully, acutely aware of all of her shortcomings. And this story is, is just, is completely saturated with grace. That's, that's why I like it. Because I read it, I go, wow, what grace on, on, on the part of Jesus in front of this, this whole, the whole town, essentially. So as I began to think about this, as I began to look at the story and try and understand it and try and figure out what, what am I going to say today? Um, the question that I kept asking myself is, what makes the way that the woman approaches Jesus so different from how the Pharisee approaches her? What distinguishes her approach to Jesus from his approach to Jesus? What makes her walk into the middle of this circle where she's surrounded not only right by Simon, by other Pharisees, by the press, by 
all of the townspeople, all of whom are looking down on her in condemnation, in judgment, because she's a sinful woman. She's a prostitute. They know her reputation. And even as she stands on the edge of the crowd of onlookers, before she walks over to Jesus, she can already see that Simon has ignored Jesus, some very essential things. He never washed his feet. He did not give oil, him oil for his hair, sometimes perfume or something because it's dusty, they sweat, they smell. When a guest comes to your home, you wash his feet, period. When a guest comes to your home, you give him oil for his head, period, so that he can be comfortable in your home and eat and enjoy conversation. Simon ignored these. He's essentially bringing dishonor on himself, on his house, and dishonoring Jesus, his guest, in the process. And this woman stands here and sees that, and she can't help but to act. She can't help but to move forward towards Jesus and correct these, these dishonorable things that the, 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 Simon, that the Pharisee has, has neglected to do. She disregards any thought of her her dignity of her reputation, and she moves into the middle of the circle. And, it, and I kept asking myself, what, what, why is she crying? What moves her to these tears? What makes her wash Jesus' feet with her tears? What makes her let down her hair in public? Hair is only, for a woman in that time, you only let down your hair for your spouse, or in this case, for her lovers. What makes her anoint his feet with her perfume, the same perfume that she would have had worn around her neck in a little vial in public to attract clients, lovers? What is it that drove her to kiss his feet, to kneel at his feet? Remember, he's lying, reclining. She's kneeling at his feet, kissing his feet, humbling herself before all those present. Can you see the picture? As I kept coming back to that question, what made her approach different to Jesus. I can't help but think that it had to start with a deep, this deep awareness, this deep need that she had. Awareness of her brokenness, of her sin, certainly, of her failures. This awareness that it comes from Right, this is what Romans 1 said, that we all have that, that God has made himself plain to all of creation, to all men. We all know deep down somewhere, maybe we choose to repress it, maybe we choose to ignore it, but we all know that there is a God, that we need him, that he can meet our needs. But equally, she would have known because she, everyone knows her reputation. Everyone knows who she is. She would have constantly endured the condemnation, right? The rejection, the ridicule of the whole society around her. She would have known her faults, at least from society's eyes. But I think even more deeply, and perhaps unconsciously, she would have known because there was a hole in her soul. One of my favorite quotes, the French philosopher Pascal said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus. There is a vacuum. She has a vacuum in her heart, literally a space where there is nothing. It's an, it's an emotional vacuum. It's a relational vacuum that she's been trying to fill her whole life, that we've all been trying to fill. It's the need to be loved and accepted and valued, to have purpose, dignity, and worth. Since I like quoting French philosophers, <laughs> Jean-Paul Sartre said, he was an existentialist. He was an ardent 
atheist. Um, but on his deathbed, he referenced this deep felt need. He said, I do not feel that I am the product of chance. I don't feel that I am a speck of dust in the universe, but someone who was expected, prefigured, pre- prepared, in short, a being whom only a creator could put here. This is the vacuum. He's talking about that vacuum. He is on his deathbed about to die, and he goes, no, there's a hole there. I've been trying to fill it with something else, but there's a hole there. There's a deep need. This is how the woman feels. She is in that parable. She is the man who is in debt to the order of 500 denarii. That's like a year's wages, and she can't pay it back. And so she stands before all of those who look upon her in condemnation and contempt, as she stands before even Jesus, who is himself without sin, and even further, when he extends grace and mercy to her, she feels so unworthy, so undeserving. She knows there's nothing she can do to earn redemption for herself. She has that, that deep vacuum that she's been trying to fill for so long. And yet the actions that we see her do in this, this story, those aren't just the actions of someone who is repentant, who is desperate for change. They are also, there's also worship there. She kissed his feet. And so stronger than this emotion, more overwhelming is this knowledge that despite all of her brokenness, despite her inability to pay off this debt, she is forgiven. She's free. She's no longer defined by her past. And it's the second thought that, that drives her to act, that she can't hold back. So driven by that knowledge, she is forgiven that she is forgiven, that she's filled with boundless joy, with gratitude, she worships at the feet of Jesus. She worships as she wets his feet with her tears, as she dries them with her hair. She worships as she pours out the perfume over his feet. In a sense, right, her hair and her perfume were announcing the tools of her trade, of her past. She has been forgiven much, and so she loves much. Personally, I like this story for two reasons. Um, Firstly, because for those of you today, who you look at your past and you see great looming shadows there. There's a promise in this story, I think. And that is that those who have been forgiven much also have an incredible capacity to love. Some of the people that I know who have the biggest shadows in their lives, in their pasts, also have the biggest, most honest capacity and love for God that I know of anyone. Um, I've seen this in my wife's life, and she's going to be embarrassed, but she gave her permission to talk about her. Um, some of you maybe know her past. That she, has, she comes from a difficult family. Some of you maybe have that same past. She had a father who was manipulative and controlling. And, sorry, a stepfather came into their family and played them against each other. I won't get into details. But it made it almost impossible for her to have a relationship with a God who calls himself father. Right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. And I remember the first time that I heard her pray and she addressed God as Father. And there was something in her tone, in her voice, in the way she spoke to him that was so vulnerable, so honest. So there was a love there that escapes me personally because I, don't, I haven't overcome those things with God in my past. Not the same thing. I've overcome other things, but not those kind of things. And as she prayed, and, she, and she, I still love to hear her pray because it challenges me to have that kind of love for God. The second is this. Maybe you're more like me today. As I was reading the story, and I, I'm thinking, well, I'm probably more 
like the Pharisee, like I think I'm a pretty good person. I come from a good family. I really don't understand this whole thing about being forgiven much or loving much. I've always gone to church. Sounds like Teddy's resume, right? <laughs> I feel like I could love him more. I have to start with, I have to start with an honest admission that maybe my debt is a little bigger than I think. That given the right circumstances, that I'm just as capable as the other guy who does atrocities over here, I'm just as capable of that. If I had been born in the right place, grew up in the right place, didn't have the parents that I have, I am just as capable as a human being as he is of those things, or as she is of those things. And I have blind spots as well. And perhaps my sin is hidden in, that, in those blind spots. I'm not talking about trying to pull out every little sin in your life to make yourself feel bad. I'm talking about having a, asking God to help you have a just appraisal of your standing, of your place, to understand your place before him. Because when you start to understand where he has brought you from, how he has met your needs, how he continues to meet your needs, you start to build that love that the woman had for Jesus. Perhaps a bigger question um, that occurred to me was, you know, just like the woman in the story, what have your ultimate desires led you to pursue? She desired to be known, to be loved, to be accepted, to be valued, to have dignity. And she pursued those things, and they were met for a time by the things that were in her past that she had pursued. But in the end, she sacrificed those things, right, symbolically her hair, her perfume at the feet of Jesus, where she found true love, true acceptance, true value, true dignity, true worth. So which of your ultimate desires do you need? Which of your ultimate desires are causing you to pursue things that you shouldn't be pursuing? Which ones do you need to lay at Jesus' feet? Ravi Zachariah's daughter, uh, Naomi, I heard her tell a story once. Um, and she tells this story of the first time that she met a prostitute in Amsterdam. Um, she has a, a justice, social justice ministry that is very uh, global. And um, as the conversation continued with this woman, she would revolve, it seemed, between two different personas, between this fragile, vulnerable child and then this fierce woman filled with anger. After some time, Naomi's friend asked her if she had ever considered going to church. And the woman laughed and shook her head and said, you tell me, if I walk into one of your churches, will they see me as a woman or as a prostitute? Naomi didn't respond right away because she wasn't sure she was proud of the answer. But her friend was honest and said, well, they might see you as a prostitute, but they would be wrong because that's not how Jesus sees you. He sees you as a person. And the prostitute responded, no, no, the problem with your people is that you tell me I should leave my old life, but you never let me forget where I came from either. We do this to each other all the time, but Jesus doesn't. He looks at the sinful woman and he tells her not to leave her past, not only to leave her past, but then he forgets it himself. This is what grace looks like to the sinner. He recognizes that I am completely undeserving but then he forgives me and he forgets the past. He, gives, he draws me out into new life where I am loved and accepted and valued. And this is why he can look at the sinful woman and say, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So now, Tim was just talking about the application of 
um, grace on sinners. We all need that, right? After all, we all understand, at least academically, that we're all sinners. We've all got some brokenness. We're, we all fall short. But the truth is, here's the truth for most of you that are listening to this message. Most of us would enter the story as the winner, not the sinner. Most of us enter the story as Teddy Winston, uh, the religious guy, the one disgusted by those we, we perceive at whatever level it is that their, their moral ineptitude, their corruption is kind of yucky uh, to us, and that, that they're far from God. Most of us enter the story, the truth is, as much as we don't want to hear it, as the Pharisee. Now, many of us know at least some of the Bible. Many of us know most of the Ten Commandments and try to keep them. We're good, upright citizens. Yeah, there was that one crazy night in college, right? But if I forget that, for the most part, I've lived a pretty good life. In our story, Jesus tells this thinly veiled parable that involved two debtors, if you remember it, right? One who had been owed a year's worth of wages and the other who owed about two weeks' worth. And neither of them could pay. And the creditor completely forgives both of their debts. Jesus asked the Pharisee, which one of them is more grateful? And the Pharisee replies, what would make common sense, right? That the one that had the bigger debt forgiven is the most grateful. And Jesus says that's right, but then he basically tells the Pharisee that he's the one who owed less, and thus this woman is the one who owed more. Both of their debts are forgiven, and she's responding this way because she's more grateful than he is. Now, interestingly enough, we're calling a serious conversation with Jesus. Did you catch that nobody talked in the story for a little bit? The woman, the sinful woman, never says a word. And the Pharisee, the winner, the righteous guy, his judgment of the woman was just in his own head. He never spoke it out loud. Jesus knew what he was thinking. Jesus understood his heart by look, just looking at him. And see, Jesus never condemns the Pharisee either. He never says the woman's forgiven, but the Pharisee is not. He says both of you are forgiven. It's just that one of them, as an author I read this week put it this way, it's just that one of them is really living in it. One of them is really living in it. One of them is really living in it. Tim said, this is a story about grace, and grace is always offensive to, who, to people who perceive they've been forgiven little. If you want a little fun homework assignment this holiday week, you can go home and look this story up. It's from Luke chapter 7, starts in verse 36, and you'll see that depending on the translation you use, the story actually changes. It's very interesting because of the translation of one little Greek word. Even big-time translations like the NIV and the King James Version translate this story differently because of this Greek word, O-T-I. It's pronounced hati, and it can mean a couple of different things. It can be translated as for or hence or so, or it can be translated because or since. Now, let me give you the story looking at it both ways. In verse 36, the NIV says, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But the King James says, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, because, for she loved much. And just this simple translation disagreement says so much about grace. If you translate it one way, it says that her sins are forgiven, and because of that, she shows Jesus great love. If you translate it, see, her love is a response to the forgiveness. If you go the other way, you translate it the other way, it says her sins are forgiven because she's shown great love. Her love was the prerequisite for being forgiven. And so this is the way the Pharisee in the story sees it, right? He's made good with God because of his faithfulness, the way he lived. Teddy Winston, right? 
This is the way he lived his life, right before God. Thus, he would be forgiven. The woman believed that Jesus making her, was making her at one with God, and so she is living in faith. In our story, Lily comes to Jesus in faith. This is a conversation about the reality of grace. One theologian, one theologian defined grace this way. He said, it's the absolutely free expression of the love of God with no strings attached. And this is the whole idea, right? God loves us. You've heard this. He forgives us. He accepts us. Even though we don't earn it or deserve it, right? We understand that about grace. Because God has let go of our sin. Not because of how good we are, but because of how good God is. Now, I, I, one writer I, I read gave a great example of this. Uh, when I go out to eat with my mom, my mom's on a fixed income. She makes very little money. Well, she makes all right money, but she doesn't have a lot of money to throw around. And so whenever we go out to eat, it's time to pay the check. What does my mother do? She fights me for the check. Literally fights me for the check. I cannot pay. It's a personal insult to her if I pay. So do you know what I do? Not all the time. But sometimes, when I leave her house, I'll tuck a 20 inside her pocketbook. Or I'll leave a 20 on the counter. Right? And this is kind of me saying, look, whether you want it or not, I'm giving it to you. Whatever you do with this is now entirely up to you. Grace is God's way of saying, forgiveness is yours, whether you want it or not. I'm giving it to you. What you do with it now is entirely up to you. And that's the real reality of the world of grace that you and I live in. We're accepted by God because not of how hard we try, not not all our good works, not how little bad we do. We're righteous and forgiven by God because of grace. So the question is, will you live in the reality of grace or not? Will you live in that reality or not? Some do, some get it, and break alabaster jars of perfume and pour them on Jesus' feet. Some don't and forever go around beating themselves, trying to get themselves righteous enough before God. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection changed the reality in which you live. The reality is that we live in a world that has been graced and embraced by God. Some people choose to live in that reality, some don't. It doesn't change the love of God has for them. What we experience at salvation is when we fully give our lives over to Jesus, it opens our eyes to the fact that we are, because of him, already forgiven and loved by God. When we get that at deep levels, it feels like it's happened for the first time. It's like you just woke up to it. There's a great movie. It's a stupid movie, but it's, a, it's got a lot of spiritual undertones. It's an old Tom Hanks movie called Joe and the Volcano. Tom Hanks plays a man who finds out he has a terminal disease, so he decides to go jump into a volcano on an island in the Pacific Ocean to appease the gods who the residents of the island say are angry. But over the course of the movie, he gets this second chance at life. And he meets this woman he falls in love with, and so his heart and his mind are changing. He's beginning to, to see things differently, and he's out one night with this woman on the boat, and she utters something about changing your understanding of reality. See, God offers this to all of us. The question is, will you live in it or not? So here, as they're out, Tom Hanks and, and, and Meg Ryan are out. Here, here's this wonderful line she utters about the world of grace. Check this out. Your life seems unbelievable to me. All of this like life seems unbelievable to me. My father says that almost the whole world is asleep. Everybody you know, everybody you see, everybody you talk to. 
He says that only a few people are awake, and they live in a state of constant, total amazement. How great is that line? Right? How great is that line? My father says that almost the whole world is asleep. Everybody, you know, everybody you see, everybody you talk to. He says that only a few people are awake to grace. And they live in a state of constant, total amazement. Lily at the feet of Jesus lives in a state of constant, total amazement. So the question is, will you live in the reality of grace? If we do, if you will. It's not just about your relationship with God. It's about the relationship others have with God too. Will you open your eyes to the reality that we're forgiven, loved, and free? Will you open your eyes to the reality that that person over there, the morally detestable one that might turn towards God, that one too might be, through Jesus, forgiven, set free, and stand before God exactly like you do? Will you live in that reality and treat them accordingly? It's so easy to become the Pharisee in the story and to cast judgment on those who we perceive are not as good as we are. The Pharisee did it to the woman in the story. There are times when we all play the Pharisee, when somebody's not living out the way we want to in their lives, doing the things we think they should. It's so easy to make life and faith about who's in and who's out. Surely they can't be forgiven by God. Look at what they're doing. But the reality of grace is that there is enough grace for the furthest of sinners. There is enough love. There is enough forgiveness. There is enough acceptance for me and for you and for all of us. It's available to all of us in Jesus Christ. To, through faith in him, the truth is, through faith in him, we're all in. We're all in. The most morally detestable one, simply in turning to Christ. There's enough room for all of us. And our calling of his followers is Jesus is to open, help open other people's eyes to the reality that they're already loved by God, both the sinners and the winners. And if we could really get that, if you could really get where you stand, if you could really get where you stand, you would live every day out in a content state of total amazement. Let's pray. Father. What God hands down to us stories of loving prostitutes. There is none like you. And so, Lord, for the sinners in the room, may our eyes be open to grace. And may we rejoice in it deeply. And, Lord, for the winners in this room, people like me who think they're a little bit better, a little bit more righteous. Lord, would you open our eyes to the reality in which we stand would we see things for as they really are so that we would understand and stand before you in that state of utter and total amazement? In Jesus' name we pray.